Now hear God's holy word from 1 Corinthians chapter 3 as we continue our study through Paul's letter to the Corinthian church. Pay close attention. This is God's holy word. I, brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual people, but as to carnal, as to babes in Christ. I fed you with milk and not with solid food, for until now you were not able to receive it. And even now you're still not able, for you are still carnal. For there are envy, for where there are envy, strife, and divisions among you, are you not carnal and behaving like mere men? For when one says, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Apollos, are you not carnal? Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's give thanks together. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your Holy Spirit. And we pray that your spirit now would fill us as we engage in this encounter with your word. We pray uh, especially that you would fill me with your spirit, that I might deliver it in an articulate way, that you would uh, deliver us from all error, deliver us from all distraction. And may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O God, our rock and our nearest kinsman. Amen. I remember a time long ago before we had children and when we were looking forward to the prospect of, of having children and the Lord blessing us in that way, I, I really had no clue about the phases of childhood development, especially early childhood development. I couldn't remember at what age, didn't know in fact, at what age a, child, a, a child should be eating solid food or walking or talking. Which comes first? Do they walk first and then they talk? Or they start talking and then they walk? How does that go? I remember at some point I learned to talk, I learned to read and tie my shoe, but you forget somewhere along the way how those things come in order uh, and, and in what relationship they serve the other and at what age you're supposed to be doing certain things. But then when you have children of your own, you start to see these little people that God has given to you start to develop so quickly. These little accomplishments start to come one after another and you become so excited over the smallest little thing. She slept through the night. Boy, that's, let's throw a party. That's the most exciting thing ever. He went to potty all by himself. That's incredible. She put her shoes on the right feet this time. That is incredible. And even though these are things you and I do every single day without any applause, without any gold stars, without an ounce of credit or acclaim, past a certain age, you do not get a round of applause for cleaning your plate. You just got to get over that. Nobody cares anymore. But that's because we have higher expectations of people as they get older. We expect as our children grow and as we grow together, we expect that as we mature, we stop responding to our environment, we stop responding to people around us like children, and we begin to act like adults. And we understand what being adult means. We understand what it means to be mature. Paul grabs onto this theme of maturation from infancy to adulthood to give the Corinthian Christians a picture of how they're behaving. Now, from the very beginning of this letter, he has worked to encourage them with the assurance that the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is real wisdom. They're, they're enamored with and they're enthralled by a whole lot of things, philosophies and contemporary uh, wisdom in the world that is false wisdom. It, it looks like wisdom. It has a semblance of wisdom. It sounds really good. It sounds really attractive, but it is not real wisdom. It's not saving wisdom knowledge. It's not saving wisdom in any sense. And so 
uh, he's writing them to assure them that the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is real wisdom, even though it looks nothing like the wisdom of the world. In fact, the gospel compared to that looks weak. It looks foolish. He's used those very words. But in spite of that, it transcends wisdom. And those who don't take hold of the gospel and submit to the Lord Jesus Christ, they are the fools. They are the unwise, um, not those who do uh, take hold of Christ. Now, at this point, the Corinthians Christians might be thinking to themselves, okay, I know where he's going next. I know what he's about to do because we are in Christ because we have submitted ourselves to him. He's about to praise us that we have uh, received spiritual wisdom and now we have attained this high level of maturity. But the way that he goes from here is far from praise. In fact, he, he says the exact opposite. What he says is, after all of this, you're still acting like babies. You ought to be growing up in wisdom, continuing to mature more and more, but rather than growing, your maturation process is stagnant. You've stopped. You're like a 12-year-old in diapers. You're, you're, it doesn't look like you're going to grow up anytime soon. Now, there's nothing wrong with being a baby when you're a baby. Paul isn't trying to be harsh here to babies, right? In, in speaking this way, babies are supposed to get milk. And Paul affirms that when I was with you the first time, that's what I gave you because that's what you needed. I didn't try to feed you with meat. I didn't give you the difficult things, the harder things to understand and comprehend. I started out with the basics. I started out with the simple things because that's what you needed and that's what it took to get you to thrive. The problem now many years later, is, is not that the Corinthians are still toddlers in a high chair and Paul's trying to shove calculus at them when they can't even count to 10. The problem is that they've long since passed the point where they should be counting on their fingers. They ought to be ready for long division. They ought to be ready uh, to, to do some more advanced math, but they still, they still are having trouble counting to 10. And the chief marks of their immaturity are evident in the things that he, he's already rebuked them for. He says, I'm saying that you're acting like babies because of your envy, because of your strife, because of your divisions. You aren't acting as if you're living with the spiritual wisdom that I delivered to you and the spiritual wisdom that I've been talking about the whole time. You are not ordering your lives in a mature way and an orderly way around the gospel. You are behaving, he says, like mere men. He says this in verse 3 and then in verse 4. He, he says, are you not carnal? Uh, are you not carnal and behaving like mere men? These phrases, mere men and carnal, mean you're, you're living on the basis of your Adamic and corruptible nature alone. You are living under the rule of your sinful nature, your flesh. You are making your corruptible nature your guide and your rule. You're living as if you've never been resurrected with Jesus. You're living as if you've never been forgiven or transformed by God's Holy Spirit. I need to stop right here and, and point something out because there's a, a, a a teaching based on this passage that you may have heard at some point, and I, I think we need to spend just a moment on it. Um, some popular teachers and writers have understood this section of scripture to be establishing three different categories of, of human. There is the unsaved Adamic man, 
there is the renewed man who is spirit-filled and in communion with God and submitting to the Lord Jesus as king. And then there's this third category of the so-called carnal Christian. Have you heard that phrase before, the carnal Christian? Um, you, you might have run across that. There's the man who has been quote-unquote saved, but he's not, uh, he's not submitting to Jesus as king. He's not submitting to Jesus as Lord, and he's still led around by his sin nature so that he'll always be a babe in Christ. Well, this error has been prevalent for a little over a century, and you've probably heard people talk this way before at some point. You've heard about the carnal Christian. Uh, I think it was introduced by C.I. Schofield's comments on this verse, and everybody had the Schofield Bible 50 years ago. Everybody, that's what everybody had, and, and his comments have kind of worked their way into the uh, the church and the consciousness, and, and, and it's been popularized also more recently by Campus Crusade. They use that term carnal Christian. But this three-category view of humanity, this ultimate three-category view to think there are unsaved carnal people, there are Christians who submit to Jesus as king, and then there's this third category of carnal Christians who kind of have their, their fire insurance. You know, they're, they're not going to hell, but they're not submitting to Jesus as king. I don't think that's helpful. In fact, I think it's, it's, um, uh, it's full of a, lot of a lot of error. And I understand where they're coming from, and I think I know why they want to say that. They want to teach this, and they want to they want to speak this way to make sure that grace is really grace, that it's really free. We don't merit salvation by our works. They don't want to add any sense of, of works or obedience to salvation or justification. They want to make sure that when we talk about salvation, that we're not earning anything by what we do for Jesus. I understand that. But the church has always professed that a, 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 a saving faith produces a changed life. A changed life naturally flows out of saving faith. It is impossible for anyone to have Jesus as Savior unless they're also willing to obey Him as Lord. If you do not obey Him as Lord, then I would question, is He your Savior? Have you submitted yourself to Him? But there's no third category. The Bible always divides mankind ultimately, ultimately into two categories, not into three. Now you can think of the parable of the soils, and even in just a minute, Paul is going to make some various descriptions of people. But I'm talking about ultimately, in an ultimate sense, there really are two. Either you have the Spirit or you do not. You are either worldly or you are spiritual. You are either alive or you're dead, and there's no in-between. Maybe uh, Paul makes it a little clearer in Romans 8, where he says, um, those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the, thing of the on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. To be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. So then, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. But you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. It's pretty simple there, isn't it? That, that either you have the Spirit of God living in you or you are in the flesh. Ultimately, there are only two categories. So, so back, to our, back to our text. When Paul says there that you are carnal, that, that you are behaving like 
mere men, and what he means by that is you're living as if nothing's been changed, nothing's been transformed about you. He's not saying that the Corinthians are a second-class, lower tier of Christians. He's not saying there are those who are spirit-filled and those who are not. He's not saying that there are those who um, are, are uh, submitting to Jesus as Lord and those who are not. He's saying that they're, they're behaving like non-Christians altogether. Their behavior is a contradiction of their profession of faith in Jesus. Uh, there are two categories. There are Christians and non-Christians, but it's possible for real Christians to act momentarily as if they were not Christians, just as it's possible for non-Christians to surprise us every once in a while with behaviors that make it look like momentarily they are Christians. But, but these behaviors don't create new categories of people. A carnal Christian is not some third category of human. It's not some second category of Christian. A carnal Christian in using Paul's language here, is a Christian who isn't acting like one presently and who better repent and follow the Lord faithfully or else judgment is coming. And that's the thrust of Paul's instruction here. So he continues to show them how immature they have been. And he does this by undermining the things that they think are really important. He, he reprioritizes their world. Small children the kind of children that they're acting like, small children have their priorities all out of whack, which is why they throw a fit when you give them the green cup at lunch and not the red cup. And their world falls apart and disintegrates because they have the green cup and they don't understand. It's not, they're, they're not thinking clearly when they want to wear the Spider-Man costume to the wedding. You know, that's, they're not thinking clearly and they throw a fit. The child needs to have his priorities restructured. And that's what Paul does for the Corinthians. Your priorities are all out of whack. You're, you're behaving like children. He says in verse 5, Who then is Paul and who is Apollos, but ministers through whom you believed? As the Lord gave to each one, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. So then neither he who plants is anything, nor he who waters but God who gives the increase. Now he who plants and he who waters are one, and each one will receive his own reward according to his own labor. Remember back a couple of weeks ago when we studied the beginning of this letter, he was addressing the partisan fighting between them over who had the better teacher. And now he briefly returns to this, hoping to show them really how silly this is. He says, who is Paul? Who is Apollos but ministers through whom you believed Jesus. We aren't gods. You were introduced to Jesus through us. We were only his ministers. He uses the word diakonos. It's the word where we get the word deacon. He's, we're your servants. Another way to put this is we're, we're, your, we're your table waiters. We are, we are the people who wash your feet. Who would, who would put servants on pedestals? Who would worship them? You don't, you don't build mon, uh, uh, monuments to servants. And that's all we were. He's trying to break up their personality cults by showing them how the work of Paul and Apollos and Cephas and, and the others are all integrated, how they're all working together for the Lord. So he, he switches to an agricultural picture and he says, I planted, Apollos watered, and God gave the increase. I did some of the work. I didn't do all of it. Apollos did different things for the work after me, vital things. 
but neither of us could, could guarantee a specific outcome on, on the process. It, it, it's God who deserves the praise and the glory. He is the one who, after all, provided the growth. All we did was plant, all we did was water, and we left the rest to the Lord. Now, there's another important lesson here I don't want us to miss or, or pass too quickly over, that God is the one who gives the increase. We want to be assured that if we do a certain thing a certain way, if we do it just the right way, if we plant the right seed and water just as faithfully as we can on a certain schedule with not only the right water, but the right fertilizer and the other attention that, that the plant needs, then we are going to get a specific result uh, without a doubt. We are going to have a guaranteed yield. And if, and if on the front end, we can't be uh, guaranteed specific results, then why would we even try? We have a very mechanical view of the processes by which we obey God and do the work that we're called to do. But anybody who's ever planted a garden knows that it's not a mechanical process. You know that often, very times, you're surprised in good ways and bad ways by what God does after you plant the seed, after you water, what comes out of the ground is up to God, and often uh, it's more than you expected or uh, some other factors involve uh, the, the, uh, affect the yield in such a way that it's less than what you expected. What Paul is teaching and what we're being called to understand here is that you and I are called to be faithful in planting, in watering, and then to leave the results to God. All of the results. God has committed to us the preaching of his word, the teaching of his word, the living out of his word. Those are the things he's committed to us, but the effectiveness of his word he has reserved for himself. And we can't ever guarantee results. We can't promise them. We can't manage them. We can't force them. All we can and must do is be faithful with our assignment. Has God given you the assignment to plant? Then plant then plant and plant and plant. Has he told you to water? Then water and water. Has he given you the commandment or the assignment to guarantee an outcome? No, absolutely not. Often we see when you pour yourself out over here or when you plant seeds over there, God blesses you from an unexpected direction. You have, you have blessing and favor and success from an unexpected place. So Paul says the planter and the one who waters will each receive his award. What does he say at the very end of verse 8? He will receive his own reward according to his own labor. Not, significantly he says, not according to his results. We aren't blessed by our results. We're blessed by our labor. So Paul is reorganizing their priorities and reordering the way that they think about how things work in the kingdom. They're thinking like children. They're thinking in this very immature, stunted way. And he reorders their perspective to show, no, 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 this is how God does things. And in the next section, Paul switches from an agricultural metaphor to a construction metaphor. Verse 9, for we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field. You are God's building. So 
just as in men's forum uh, last week, we saw how Paul uses four different, uh, he mixes four metaphors in about three verses, uh, if you remember that. So Paul does this again. You are both the building blocks and the builders. You are both the field and the field workers. And he's okay with this. He can mix these metaphors uh, because he's the apostle Paul and we we read it. We say, oh yeah, I know what you're doing here. So he says, we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field. You are God's building. According to the grace of God, which was given me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation and another builds on it, but let each one take heed how he builds on it. For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become clear for the day will declare it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work which he has built on it endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved yet so as through fire. Do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the spirit of God dwells in you? If anyone defiles the temple of God, God will destroy him, for the temple of God is holy, which temple you are. Paul speaks as a builder. He says, I started this construction project when I first came to you, and I, I laid the foundation, and then I left the project in the hands of others who uh, are going to finish the construction. I've laid the foundation, and another builds upon it, he says. Let each one take heed how he builds upon it, he says. So the shape and the size of the foundation is going to dictate to a large degree what kind of building is going to be built on that foundation. A house is going to have one kind of foundation. A football stadium is going to look different. A grocery store will look different from either of those. And so if you lay a foundation for a nice new airport terminal, and have all the electrical and water systems in place and everything ready to go, you hope that the next person who comes along isn't there with plans to build a bowling alley on that same spot. Your work would then be wasted and the next person would squander this very specialized kind of foundation that's been laid and use it for something trivial in comparison. Now, Paul doesn't expect that because he laid the foundation that therefore he would be then expected to manage every detail from there on out. He knows that there are other builders to come that God is going to send. They're going to have their own style, their own gifts, their own ideas for how it should be built. That's okay. You know what that's called? That's called development. That's called progress and advancement. What's not okay is when those who come after are not following the floor plan. They aren't building a church, but they start building something else entirely. Developments are wonderful, but they have to be in line with the foundation. So we don't build a wing called worldly wisdom. We don't open up uh, an, an annex called scientific knowledge or Darwinism or socialism or, or golden calf worship. Have a big hall for golden calf worship on the, on the foundation. We don't do that. We build in line with the foundation and that foundation, that cornerstone says Paul, has a name and his name is Jesus Christ. He is the only, he is the first sure foundation that could be laid. The foundation wasn't a trivial matter. Jesus is the only place they could start and their only source of unity, their only sure foundation. Well, all these different men and women, rich and poor, Jew and Gentile, slave and free, were being brought together 
The only thing that they had in common in many cases was Jesus. And now they're left with the task of knowing that foundation and building together, working together to build upon him. So Paul reminds them to be careful that they are building and taking seriously what they are building. Every believer is at work in building up the church. Now, obviously, he's not talking about primarily, not talking about our physical structure. He's talking about our participation in the building up and the influence and the glory of the people of God, the body of Christ, the reputation of the church. And every day we're hammering away, every day of our lives we're hammering away, whether we realize it or not, everything we do adds to or detracts from this massive building project. So we construct it and we do our part and we decorate it with glorious, valuable, beautiful things, hopefully gold, silver, precious stones, Others come along and add things that aren't helpful or beautiful. Wood, hay, straw, which means occasionally we need to drop back and do some demolition work uh, to, to be able to continue. When something has been added on that's you know, a little bit rickety, a little bit janky, a little bit out of code, we have to tear it out and we have to, we have to start over. And occasionally there are small visitations of judgment, persecution, or trial where Fire sweeps through the church and burns out the wood, the hay, the straw, leaving only the stuff that lasts, the gold, the silver, the precious stones. The value of our work then is revealed and vindicated by the fire of trials, or it is judged and destroyed by the same fire. Now, uh, there are a couple of ways to get off the rails in how we read this in thinking oh, the work that I contribute to the building up of the body of Christ is either gold, silver, or precious stones, or it is wood, hay, stubble. And I'm kind of a simple person. I don't have a lot of flashy uh, uh, gifts. I, I, I'm, I uh, am trying to do my best in being faithful in my job and raising my family. So it must be that the only thing that I can do is wood, hay, stubble, and that's worthless. So therefore, there's no reason to think this way or even try. Don't think that way at all. This is not a proof text for perfectionism. This is not a proof text for only those with certain very flashy kind of big uh, personality skills are the only people who can do anything for the kingdom of God and that everybody else needs not apply or needs not try. This is not a proof text for perfectionism. This is, this is instruction on faithfulness. Humble acts done in faith are gold. They are silver. They are precious stones. Big, flashy, uh, 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 famous acts done in sin are the wood, hay, and stubble. They are unfaithfulness, no matter how flashy or how bold or how grandiose they are. If they are done for self-promotion or in unfaithfulness, they are the wood, hay, and stubble. So don't, don't, don't twist that inside out and think, oh my goodness, I... I, maybe I'm not inclined in this way or that way. Maybe I'm not a, a type A personality. And so that way, that means I can't, I can't do this or that. No, that's, that's not at all. That's not at all what we're talking about. We're, 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 and and he, later he's going to um, even uh, uh, unveil that a little bit more. But know in terms of your faithfulness, your, your, your constance, your, your, uh, your tenacity, in the faith. That is gold. That is silver. Those are precious stones. And then if we are not adding to the glory of the building up of the church, 
if we're actually making it ugly by unshoddy work, uh, by, by shoddy work, and by that I mean unfaithful work, when the judgment takes place, we lose out. Our work that isn't up to code is erased, and we, he says, are plucked out of the fire. This, this fire metaphor that he's pressing here isn't purification by fire, but a testing by fire. Fire of trial, fire of judgment sweeps through and, and tests our works and leaves only the good stuff and the bad stuff is burned off. So um, the word you here, and this is really critical, as he gets to the end, he says, do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the spirit of God dwells in you? In this case, the word you is plural. He says, you all are the temple of God and the spirit of God dwells in you all. Later, he's gonna make a personal application but that personal application is based on the communal aspect. Um, I, I know you read this and say, oh, I am the temple of God. I personally am the temple of God. Uh, so, I, so I better, uh, better not you know, eat, a, eat a Twinkie because my, my body is the temple. No, in this case, in this place, he's talking about you all, you the people, you the church of God are the temple of God, all of you, and the spirit of God dwells in you all. The church is primarily the temple. The church is the replacement of the temple. The church received the visible blessing of the presence of the Spirit of God on Pentecost, just as the temple did when it was dedicated by Solomon. So the church is the new temple, except today it isn't located in just one place. Its stones are, are living stones scattered all over the world. And so he says, you all, you are the temple of God. The Spirit of God dwells in you. And so don't defile the temple of God. If you do, God will destroy you. For the temple of God is holy, which temple you are. Let me finish this uh, uh, chapter together. Verse 18. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you seems to be wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God. For it is written... He catches the wise in their own craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. Therefore, let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas, or the world or life or death, or things present or things to come. All are yours, and you are Christ's, and Christ is God's. He backs up and says, you think, children, you think that you're wise. You are confident in your own understanding of the world, but honestly, you're acting like babies. The envy, the strife, the divisions among you are not marks of your maturity, though we can get puffed up in thinking that, wow, I can really carry on an argument. Wow, I can really press an issue. That must be a mark of my maturity. And, and he says, that's not a mark of your maturity. That's an evidence of your infantility. This is, this is your carnality. If you want to be wise, then you need to become a fool for Christ. That means turn everything upside down, inside out, lead by serving, live by dying, become victorious through defeat. You can't do that if you're selfish and contentious and hateful. You have to be humble. So go against the grain of worldly wisdom, follow Jesus, and you'll really be wise. He says, you think the wise men of the world really impress God? God knows all their tricks. He quotes uh, Job there. He quotes Psalm 94. He says, God is like a hunter. God catches the so-called wise in their own traps. God mocks those who think that they're safe when they rebel against God. He says, their thoughts are futile. He overcomes them and destroys their efforts. So he's bringing to a close this argument about the danger of boasting in this way. He's explaining them that they're really selling themselves short in, their, in the way that their understanding of the Christian faith 
is, is being manifest in this argument about who their favorite teacher is, who their favorite apostle is. I belong to this teacher. I belong to that rabbi. No, what Paul wants them to see is, it's not so much that they belong to these teachers and follow them. He says, these teachers belong to you. Not only all the teachers, but, but everything else does as well. As resurrection people, as a new humanity, it all belongs to them. He says, all things are yours, whether Paul or Apostle, Apollos or Cephas, they are yours. All things are yours, whether Paul, Apollos, or Cephas, or the world, or life, or death, or things present, or things to come, all are yours. As resurrection people, as a new humanity, it all belongs to them and to us as well. The world is our inheritance. It's all there for us to take and conquer and own. Life, death, things present, things to come. They all belong to you, but it doesn't stop there. It all belongs to you. You belong to Jesus, he says, and you are Christ's and Christ is God's. There's a much bigger picture that that Paul is painting for them, bigger than the one that they're used to seeing. They're like babies who only pay attention to the thing right in front of them. But Paul turns their heads to look around, look, look at the whole world, at the whole creation. You don't just belong to Apollos or Peter. You belong to Jesus and Jesus belongs to God. Your relationship to God runs through Jesus. There's no other mediator. There's no other way to the Father. You don't get there through Peter or me, he says, but you get to the Father through his son, Jesus. And as long as you belong to Jesus, you are accepted and beloved and loved and forgiven by the Father. Now, one thing um, that this passage teaches is that we are all in the construction business. We're all builders. Jesus is the foundation. God's Holy Spirit is the architect. And we are all, every one of us are at work building up God's house and God's city. Think about how much construction information you get throughout the Bible. Think about how much there is about about building in the Bible. Moses went up to Mount Sinai and God showed him a heavenly image, a pattern of the tabernacle. Well, what did he see? What What did Moses see at the top of Mount Sinai but God's heavenly court and all of its furnishings? And Moses saw the angels serving before God there in his heavenly court the way that the priests would serve on earth. And then from there, the rest of Exodus, a great deal of the rest of Exodus is taken up with the construction of the tabernacle, the building of the of the structure, but also the, 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 the furnishings, the gold, the silver, the precious stones that went into the construction of the, of, the, uh, of the tabernacle. Later on, the spirit of Yahweh shows David the pattern of the temple with all its utensils and furnishings. It's all glorified with silver and gold, which David passed on to Solomon. And then when Solomon comes, he gets busy building the temple. God shows Ezekiel his heavenly temple and land, and he gives Ezekiel a set of plans that would later guide the exiles coming out of Babylon. And the books of Ezra and Nehemiah are about the rebuilding of the structures, but also about the rebuilding of society, which always go together. So in every one of these phases of construction throughout the history of God's people, there's the building of the physical structure that goes along with the building of the people, the reordering of the society. Those things always go together. And whenever we see that the architecture is in ruins, 
The society is also in ruins. When God's people remember that they're builders, God gives his prophets the pattern, and then the people begin to fashion the earth according to heaven. Now, there are a few things that we pick up along the way and all this building information throughout the Bible. The first thing is that the work is always public. It's never simply internal. It's never simply secret. It's never simply hidden. It's not invisible. The work is always public and can be seen and appreciated. The church is a public institution. It is a visible institution. The body of Christ has hands and feet and mouths and ears and faces. Uh, we're, We're not a private or secret society. The work is always public. Secondly, often, if not always, the work of construction throughout the Bible is beset by opposition, both by enemies on the outside who don't want to see the temple built or the walls of the city rebuilt, but also by internal strife that keeps it from being built. There is always opposition. And you can expect that when you try to build up the church, there is always and will be uh, opposition. We can just count on it. But the third thing is that we always see this because God is the homeowner who has contracted the building of his house because God is the city builder. It always gets done. Despite the opposition, it always gets done. So you are builders. Jesus, your architect, Jesus has has communicated a heavenly pattern. He will build his house and he has purposed to use you. And so when you go to work, I was going to say tomorrow, most of you are going to work on Tuesday. When you go to work on Tuesday, when you train your children, when you discipline them, when you disciple them, when you teach them, when you interact with your neighbors, you are picking up a hammer in every one of those cases. You are picking up a hammer and you are picking up a board and you're nailing something. You are, you are working on the building up of the church. Now, you are either adding garbage, you're either adding tacky stuff because of your childish, immature behavior, or you're adding glorious things because you are mature in Christ and you are being faithful and you are living a life full of gratitude and praise for what God has done for you through Jesus. You are either building in line with the foundation because you know Jesus, because you know God's word, because you have learned wisdom, you are building in line with the foundation or you're building on some crazy annex that we're gonna have to come along and tear down later or that's going to be wiped out by the fire of persecution or trial. Think in terms of your life and how you are adding to or detracting from the glory of Zion. Am I building it up? Am I glorifying it? Or really, do I have all this stuff that I'm bringing that really is tacky and awful and immature and base and carnal. And do I tear that out and repent and then ask God by your spirit, give me strength to build up your church, build up your holy city. That is what he's calling the Corinthians to. That is what he's praying for and asking for as they mature in Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word, and we pray that uh, indeed we would build up this great house, that we would add to it gold and silver and precious stones. And Father, we would pray that you would indeed rip out everything that's not helpful, everything that's not up to code, everything that's not up to your standard, that you would rip it out, burn it out, and give us a fresh start uh, if need be. Father, we pray that you would strengthen us in all things by your spirit. 
Uh, give us the ability by your spirit to walk faithfully every day. In Jesus' name, amen.